Today we're tackling a big topic. And the poem I just did, maybe you disagree with a little bit. But as I talk this morning, I want you to hear what I'm saying with grace and compassion. We're going to talk about suffering, and a lot of us probably have some strong opinions on suffering, but know this, I'm here to challenge, because church should be challenging, but I'm hopefully also here to offer a word of comfort as well. Whether this is where you are, or have been, or your friends or your family are or have been, uh, hopefully you find a little bit of comfort in this too. So we're gonna talk about the book of Job, We've all heard the story, right? Good guy, Job, is rich and prosperous, and suddenly, for no apparent reason at all, his family all dies, except for his wife who yells at him. Uh, his wealth and livelihood are stripped away from him, and he becomes humiliatingly sick. His friends then come sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights, the most appropriate thing in the entire book. And then a dialogue begins between Job and his friends. His friends insist that he must have done something wrong to deserve his suffering. And if only he repents, he will be restored to his rightful place. Job spends most of the book fighting against this and calling for God to appear and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. Job wants to know what he did wrong. He wants to know why. At the end of the book, God does indeed appear and has these speeches that are kind of intense and don't necessarily make a lot of sense, right? And finally, Job answers God and is eventually restored to his rightful place, health, wealth, and all. Quite a story, right? When I was asked to teach on Job, I got really, like, pumped up, you know? Job was my area of study in graduate school. I have a tattoo of Job from Job on my arm. What can be more exciting than talking about suffering? I'm all ready to go. But to be honest, I got a little overwhelmed because there's so much here. I didn't want us to get lost in all the details on the way to the answer, which, spoiler alert, there is no answer. We'll get to that later. But for now, here's a little roadmap. Here's what we're going to focus on. I'm going to focus on the interaction between God and Job and what that teaches us about who God is and who we are, looking at our role in our relationship with God through the lens of Job. I'm here to talk about suffering and the fill-in preacher who swears and tells you that this shit just happens sometimes, right? You've seen it. I know you have. What does Job do in response to this immense loss and suffering? To start off, Job mourns. He mourns and grieves deeply. Upon finishing his prescribed period of mourning, seven days and seven nights, he is supposed to start coming back into normal society. That's actually what his friends are trying to do. Uh, what, they, what they do, it's super easy to vilify them and be like, you guys are so insensitive. Uh, a week isn't enough time. But in the ancient Near East, there were rules and prescribed periods of time for everything. So it wasn't unusual for his friends to attempt to bring him back into normal society. 
In fact, I bet the fact that he wouldn't just caused them to panic. And the first thing they could think of was, well, if you did something wrong, you suffered. And so if you do things right, you won't suffer anymore. They were trying to help. I mean, they were trying to bring him back into ordinary life. We all know it is a situation and an answer that is inadequate at best. One of his friends said, if you seek supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely God will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. And Job, understandable to most of us, I'd guess, rails against this. Job says, until I die, I will not put my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. And then Job speaks to God. Call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Over and over again, Job insists, despite the accusations of his friends, that he is innocent and that his suffering is not based on anything. Job is a part of what's known as wisdom literature, the part of the Old Testament. We've been going through the Old Testament, right? the part of the Old Testament that is supposed to help us make sense of our experience of the world. Job is insisting upon his right to use his suffering as a lens through which to interpret his relationships, his life experience, and ultimately God. So often I think we forget that suffering is a filter through which we are forced to see everything when we experience great loss, harsh sickness, poverty, unemployment, whatever it might be, when we experience that, it becomes the way we view the world, maybe just for a time, maybe for the rest of our lives. Job is insisting upon the right to do this, and I think it gives us permission to do the same. Maybe the existence of this book within our Christian canon gives us permission to rail against the unfair things that happen to us, the things that seem meaningless and senseless. Today, I want to give you some permission, permission to see things as complicated. Often in church, we want to wrap things up neat and tidy, but then we walk out the back doors into the real world, right? Scholars and ordinary people alike have tried to see Job as an answer, but no one can seem to agree on what exactly the question is. Job wants to see God. Job is demanding that God appear and accuse him if he's done something wrong. Now to skip ahead a little bit, at the end of the book, right before Job is restored to his rightful place, which he is eventually, uh, God tells the friends that Job has spoken rightly. I think this is very important as we move forward because we have to recognize that Job's sincerity and honesty about his feelings, his world, 
even his understanding of God, are ultimately prized by God as being right. Job never accuses God of being evil. He simply accuses God of being absent. If you feel like God is absent, you have been given permission here in this text to cry out and demand that God appear to you. Which brings us to our understanding of God in this text. What do we learn about God in this? We have learned already that Job is innocent. The narrator tells us that. Despite what his friends say, we know. The first piece of good news here, because surprisingly there is good news in the book of Job, is that God does appear. God answers Job. But at face value, God seems kind of like a jerk. I mean, listen to this. Let's see if it's up there. Um, the next slide. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When all the heavenly beings, when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here your proud waves will be stopped. What does that mean, right? That was a joke. It's fine. Job asked for something very particular. He asked to be accused if he's at fault, and God apparently ignores this request completely and starts ragging on Job for not being as powerful or as knowledgeable as God. That's how it seems at face value, right? I would venture to think that there's something else going on here. There's so much we could talk about in this book, but I want to focus on who God is and what this reveals to us about God, to be God's self in this interaction between God and Job. So although God seems kind of big and blustery and powerful here, the speeches go on to continue to talk about the wonder of creation. And I don't think that's an accident. The next thing God says is, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you, do you know the time when they give birth? Now, I've never given birth, but I think there are a lot of people in here who have. And one thing I do know about it, or have heard about it, is that it takes pain to give birth. And God makes a distinct point to say, God was there when the deer gave birth. The literal translation for calving is labor pains. God was there for the labor pains of the deer. God's big, cataclysmic, overwhelming language 
speak to one thing, the chaotic, painful nature of creation. Why is this the answer to suffering? Like I said, I don't think this is an accident. God goes on to continue to talk about the works of creation that God has done. Everything from the hailstorms to ostriches to beasts in the sea that we now think of as fictional. Some have interpreted this passage to say, God is showing Job how small he is in the face of the wonder of creation and how insignificant Job's suffering is. I think it's a little bit different than that. I think God is showing Job the immeasurable value of his suffering. God's care for the labor pains of the deer speak to this point. Even in the joy of creation, something God obviously delights in, we are told in scripture over and over again, still involves a necessary element of pain. If God cares for the labor pains of the deer, if God is present with the animals in their acts of painful creation, surely God is present for Job in his suffering as well. We live in a fallen world, one that is broken, where women die in childbirth and cancer strikes the best of friends and family. Something is always lost even when we gain something new, like a graduation and a child going off to college. So exciting, right? But a family is forever changed because of that. Moving to a new place for an exciting opportunity still means leaving the place you have called home. Change itself involves grief, which means life involves grief by necessity. So finally, when all is said and done, it's very important to me here, Job has the final word. Job's reply, which is what we're going to talk about now, so God has these long speeches, and Job has a short reply in the middle, and then at the end of it all, Job has a reply. It's got a lot of interpretations, none of which we have time to wade through this morning. The most important part of Job's reply is the reply itself. The answer is in the answering. God comes in, speaks with violent imagery, and demands that Job answer God just as Job demanded of his God. And finally, in the end, Job gets the final word. The last bit of the poetry in the book is not given to God. It's given to Job, as if the book of Job is an open door, an open ear. The book of Job doesn't answer the problem of suffering because suffering isn't a problem to be solved. It's an experience to be lived. Suffering is a universal experience. It is all around us. Yet it remains one of the most mysterious of all of human experience. And I don't have an answer for you, except that you are expected to answer. God isn't upset. God doesn't punish Job for calling on God. If you are suffering, know that there is biblical precedent right here 
for us to rail against it, to call it unfair, to find it meaningless. Don't let platitudes about God's plan for the future make you feel like you can't call it like you see it. What we learn here is that God wants us to speak. God desires every part of us, even or especially those honest parts that want to make sense of our suffering but can't. That doesn't mean we'll get the answers we want. Job probably didn't feel like this was the answer he had expected. The tattoo on my forearm says, Job answered the Lord. So I have a little elevator pitch summary of it, which I was told recently. It's more than two minutes, so it's not an elevator pitch. So sorry, I guess it's not an elevator pitch. Ultimately, our relationship with God is predicated on the idea of dialogue and exchange. That is the expectation. If you are angry, be angry. If you want to offer praises, do that. Job did that too in the middle of the book. There's a whole discourse on God's wonder and might that Job gives, even after all of it. Don't hide who you are from God. The answer is messy because relationships are messy, and this is an answer about relationship. And then the reply goes like this. Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you are able to do everything, and purpose will not be withheld from you. Surely I spoke without understanding, things too difficult for me, which I did not know. With ears to ear, hear, I had heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. Because of this, I reject my words and repent in dust and ashes. This is not the whole passage of Job's reply, um, and it's a, a unique translation. Uh, it's my translation. So normally it says, uh, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Uh, it can also be translated, things too difficult, which I think speaks to this chaotic nature of suffering and this unknown nature. Job in the end says, this was too hard. I think that tells us more about this mysterious nature of suffering. Job had only heard of God, but now, now God has indeed appeared and answered Job just like Job asked. Because Job has seen God with his own eyes, he is able to answer himself. All Job says at the end of the book is that God is able to do everything, and the answer is beyond him. But he's satisfied with this. He's satisfied with the relationship with God as it is, now that God has shown God's self and answered. Job rejects his own words. He rejects the things he has said because God has come and shown God's self. Earlier I said Job accuses God not of evil but of absence. And God does a surprising thing and becomes present. I spent the last three years of my life wandering around somewhat aimlessly. Some of you know this story. I felt the call to traditional, formal, preacher, pastor, denomination, communion, sacraments, ministry, or whatever, when I was 12 years old. I went to school. I did all the right things. Went to seminary. Graduated with honors. Did everything I was supposed to. Then, three years ago, almost to the day, all of it was abruptly taken from me 
as I was fired from my first position in ministry for something I didn't do. I don't have children, and in many ways, pastoring people is my version of motherhood. And so I think I understand how Job felt when his children were taken away from him. So what have I learned over the last three years? That the only option is to keep moving forward. And that God actually is present. God isn't there to make everything better. I'm fortunate. My story has a happy ending. Two weeks ago, I, was, I accepted a position to be head pastor at a United Methodist Church in kind of the middle of nowhere, but it's still super exciting. That's okay. I'm going to learn a lot about the middle of nowhere. In many ways, I have come out on the other side. So when I was writing the sermon, it was interesting because I have always sort of thought my suffering was meaningless and senseless. And to be, to be honest, I still kind of feel that way. But I do know that God is present. I know there isn't always a happy ending. I'm blessed. I am. Not everyone's story is like mine. Not every Job gets restored to their rightful place. Sometimes the family member doesn't beat cancer. Sometimes employment eludes us time and time again. Sometimes people are sexually assaulted, and there's no explanation for that. Guys, I want to leave room for learning from the senseless things, but I also want to leave room and give honor to not learning from the senseless things. In the poem, I say, there is a difference between finding meaning in something and something having meaning on its own. We can find meaning in seemingly senseless suffering, but that doesn't mean we had to experience it to be complete. We look forward as Christians to a day and age when we are told there will be no more weeping, no more tears. If we look forward to that, if that's God's truth for us in the end, then we don't need to experience suffering to be full and complete. But it's something that we do experience day to day in our world. Yet I can see God's work and movement as he was preparing me for this next venture in life. Do I think I needed to go through the devastation of having that stripped away from me to become some better version of myself? Maybe, but also maybe not. It's okay to not learn from the senseless things if you aren't ready or if you can't see it. So often we try to placate the suffering by saying that it will be worth it that you will learn something in the end, that God is doing it to test them. But maybe, just maybe, it is in our place to decide that for someone else. Maybe their relationship with God is their own relationship with God. And we don't know what that looks like for them. Sometimes the crap is just crap to people. And I think it's okay to let people feel that way. But if we want to find meaning in it, if we are able to be patient and wait, then yes, can we find meaning in it? Absolutely. The important thing is to have grace and compassion and meet people where they are. 
The book of Job is long. We have like 37 chapters of Job wailing and asking why and demanding that God appear. There is remarkably little, like quantifiably, there are remarkably few verses given to God. Most of this book is explaining the human experience. Almost all of it is given to Job, much more than even any one of the friends. So what's the answer? The answer is presence. Presence and the expectation of relationship. In giving Job that final word, that final answer, God demonstrates how very much God wants us to participate in relationship with God. In this way, God treats us as equal partners on a level playing field. Though we were not there when the foundations of the earth were created, our voice we see in Job is elevated and lifted up. The answer is found in Job answering. That's it. That's the answer. The answer is response. Friends, I think the same is true of joy and ecstasy, just as it is of suffering. God isn't a far-off creator that wound us up like a top and just lets us go. This is the God who became a human, who used mud to heal the blind, who let God's self be nailed to a tree, and asks that God asks why he has been forsaken. God is in the nitty-gritty. God is with us. That's all I know about suffering. Whether it has meaning or doesn't have meaning, that's not really for me to decide for anyone. God is with us. That is the good news of the gospel. Job is very Christological in that way. We look at a God who responds. That's who shows up at the end of the book of Job. What God means by all of those big chaotic words is that God values the chaos, and God values our experience of the chaos. This is Emmanuel. That's what that means, right? God with us. God with us. That's what that means. That's the only answer I have. So when you see the book of Job, the patience of Job is something that's talked about a lot. But Job wasn't super patient, right? Job asked for God. So ask for God. Cry out and ask for God to appear to you. And likely, God will. That's kind of the promise here, is that God will appear for you and be with you. And so, we're going to transition. Fittingly, it is the broken body of Christ that we partake of each time we take communion. As you take communion this morning, remember that it is the broken body of Christ that Christ suffered for us to have freedom, that Christ cried out as Job did. Remember that as you take communion this morning, and remember that that suffering is what saved us. Suffering can be salvific. It can be. We can find meaning in it. 
if we are patient and we wait. But if that's the space you are in this morning, if suffering is the space you are in this morning, and you right now can't find meaning, that's okay too. You have permission for both and the promise that God will appear. I'm going to invite us to communion. I am, you know, I do the pastoring thing at a denominational church, like an old people church. So I'm going to say some old people words to invite you forward for communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had been given thanks, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, I invite you to partake in this mysterious faith in which we are saved through the suffering of our God, who is painfully and beautifully present with us, whether in joy or in suffering. I invite you to the table. <laughs>